love gathering with you every week and singing those songs as they stir and remind us to faithfulness in Christ. We sing because God is worthy and wonderful to sing about and it is amazing. <clears throat> Some headlines as you read the newspaper. I'm sure many of you maybe still read those newspapers. Um, or on your phones, or wherever you might get your news. Newspaper editors craft headlines to grab your attention. They know that you won't just naturally read the article if you don't have some sort of eye-catching headline that would grab your attention to cause you to want to read further on. You might remember in school when you were taught how to write, one of the things that your English teacher might have taught you was that you need to have a good title or you need to have a good uh, introductory sentence as to grab the attention of your reader so that they will continue to read. Now, some headlines may grab our attention more than others. Considering new evidence, a death row inmate found not to be guilty of such charges. I remember growing up in St. Louis where that kind of headline, a death row inmate found innocent, was a really a common theme, particularly in Illinois and in uh, Missouri. There was a problem with the justice system. That is, during the 1970s and 80s, overzealous prosecutors were bringing charges against innocent men and innocent women. In fact, it began to be so serious in Illinois that they had to stop uh, the death sentence because they were finding so many of death row inmates were innocent. As new uh, DNA evidence came, these men were found to be innocent. Those kind of headlines grab our attention because it stirs in us a sense of injustice. We hate to see innocent people go to jail for things they didn't do. It causes us to stir something in us when we hear innocent people hurt. This is why when we read headlines about an innocent teenager getting assaulted at school, they tend to cause us to settle in our hearts a little bit in, in a sense of reservation that, wow, this is serious. Well, consider recently, a few months ago, a headline, the president, then President Barack Obama, commutes the sentence of a man convicted of treason. Such a headline as that causes us to even stutter because as we consider what that man did and that he caused hundreds of men and women who were in strategic locations around the world caused their lives to be threatened because he leaked out information about them. Someone who's convicted of treason, well, here in America, we don't take kindly to those kind of things. When someone is convicted of being a traitor, and so we can consider several in the headlines, that when we consider that a convicted man who is clearly guilty, the evidence is clear, that he did everything he, he is being charged with. But when a president then commutes his sentence, it causes us to be shocked in all that a guilty man would go free. Now, President Obama, and I'm not speaking to his politics, every president 
uh, affords that pardoning and communing of sentences, and so this isn't a Republican-Democrat thing, but rather causes us to pause as we consider a, a guilty man going free. It's injustice. Where is the justice in that when one who has caused the harm of someone else is allowed to go free? Friends, that's what we want to think about together in God's Word today. How a guilty murderer, a man who tried to overthrow the Roman government, an insurrectionist, was allowed to go free. And an innocent man who had done nothing wrong was not merely convicted but was sentenced to die. I invite you to turn this morning to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. I invite you to grab one of those pew Bibles in front of you and open to page 852. If you're not used to looking at God's Word, the large numbers are the chapter numbers and the small numbers are the verse numbers. So look for the big 15 and then we'll be right there by it. Find that big 15 and, and you are there. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consolation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. Among the rebels in prison, who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having, having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Well, friends, we have arrived at the most sacred words, perhaps all of the Bible. We have reached the pinnacle of Mark's gospel. Our journey has been long. Maybe perhaps some have been wearied by it. But we have ascended into the heights of glory. We are truly standing on holy ground as we consider these words. And I just invite you to stand in awe and wonder at everything you read in these words. 
For in these words we see Jesus is tried and convicted and sentenced to death. Let us take in the beauty and the wonder that is Christ Jesus in this passage. That he would endure such evil and wickedness. He would be handled and taken and beaten. Let us stand amazed at Jesus the Nazarene. And take in the wonder there is in the cross of Christ. An innocent man. Innocent. Done nothing wrong. Nothing to deserve any of this treatment. An innocent man, Jesus Christ. In great irony was the true king. He was the king of the Jews. And he was sentenced to death by crucifixion. Yet as we read in this, an innocent, a guilty man, excuse me, Barabbas was set free. And my hope this morning is that you see yourself in Barabbas. That you and I, that we are that guilty man. We are the one who deserves death, yet Jesus Christ died in your place so that you too might go free. As we consider again Mark's Gospel and the purpose of Mark's Gospel, he is writing to Christians. He's writing this letter to Christians in Rome. In the first century Rome, when Christians were under such persecution, with the fear of death, it was at every door. He writes this letter to Christians, to the church. He's writing it to you this morning. And so, remember that this knowledge here is not new, and many of you, I'm sure, have, your Bible was probably well beat down and Worn in this area of the gospel as you consider the cross of Christ. And so what can we learn from that? What, what can we gain from this? We, we understand much of it, and that is that Christ is dying on our behalf. But what can we learn? Well, I think Mark here provides for us three, three reminders to encourage weary saints facing temptation, persecution, and difficulty. Mark is reminding the church of Jesus Christ that when you are in the midst of temptation, when you are being persecuted, when you are facing difficulty, I want you to remember some things about our Lord. So if that's you this morning. If you are facing temptation or persecution or difficulty in your life, there is much here that we can meditate on and savor and hopefully be reminded first that Jesus is the messianic king. Jesus is the king. And he deserves our steadfast submission. We may be tempted this morning to recant. We may be tempted to deny like Peter. But he deserves our steadfast submission. We see also that Jesus is the suffering servant. Who demonstrated how you should patiently endure evil. We heard in the scripture readings... Paul, using these words of Mark's gospel and, and other gospel writers, telling the church of Jesus Christ, encouraging Timothy to endure patiently as he looks to Jesus, the author and perfecter of his faith. 
Thirdly, we see that Jesus is a willing sacrifice who died so that you could go free. So that that weight of sin and sorrow that you feel this morning, that your sin always brings, it may be lifted from you. And you may know with confidence that you stand before God's throne, not one person, not one demon, Satan himself, can tell you to leave. Because you have been pardoned by the King of Kings. So let's consider these three things this morning. First, Jesus is the messianic king who deserves your steadfast submission. We are told in this passage that really what we see is a colliding of kingdoms. We, we see two powers coming in collision together in this passage. We're told by Mark that Jesus is now being delivered over to Pilate. You remember a couple weeks ago we considered Jesus' really not so much a trial, because remember... The Jews are not in power. They're mere puppets underneath of Rome. Uh, Caesar is king. He's in charge. And when they were defeated, uh, they did no longer have power uh, to execute people for criminal, uh, for capital punishment. And so what we see is that they are trying to get their game together in order to bring charges before Pilate. So remember, Pilate, he's a Gentile, he's not a Christian, not a Jew, um, and doesn't, you know, he doesn't care about God things. So the Jews can't bring a charge of blasphemy, because remember, that's what the high priest had, right? He says, look, he's blaspheming, he's making himself equal with God, he's a blasphemer. Well, if they had brought that charge to Pilate, Pilate would have been like, you know what, I don't really care. In fact, he says in some of the other Gospels, like, I don't really care about your religion that much here. This is a matter that's not important to me. And so we understand then that they must trump up some charges against him that would kind of get Pilate to sit back a little bit and think, well, maybe this is kind of serious. Maybe I need to look at this fellow. And so they bring the charge that Jesus is the king of the Jews. Now, if you look at verses 1 and 2, we see this is what happens. In verse 1, as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. Now, one caveat, we understand that when it says the whole council, it doesn't mean every council member. Because we know of at least two council members who were actually against this plan. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. So we know these two brothers are, are faithfully following Christ. They want nothing to do with this. And so, but we do understand that it was the majority of the council who came together and they came up with this plan. And the plan was, is to say, look, Jesus has taught that he's a king. And we understand some Old Testament passages that, 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 that the Messiah will be a king. So let's do this. Let's just go to Pilate and say Jesus is claiming to be king. Now, why is that so serious? Well, because any person that wants to claim to be a king is obviously doing that against Caesar. That is, he is coming to say that I'm coming as a king by the power of God to defeat Caesar. And so this causes Pilate a little caution. But what's fascinating in Mark's gospel, if you look at verse 2, Pilate is not so impressed by Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Now, in our language, we don't emphasize uh, the you there. But in the original language, it's somewhat emphatic. And that is, are, 
are you the king of the Jews? Like, you're him? Like, I was expecting someone kind of better. Like, you know, like someone maybe a little bit more buff. I don't know. Someone better looking. Remember Isaiah's prophecy, there was nothing about him that was impressive. There's nothing about Jesus' appearance that was like so cool that everybody like, I want to go hang out with that guy. And so Pilate is paused. He's reserved. He's like, wait a minute. What's going on here? This seems weird. This guy surely can't be a king. Where's his army? He seems weak. And he's quiet. If we know anything about leaders, leaders are often loud. (laughs) They often talk a lot. They often want to prove their points and demonstrate their power. If Jesus was truly a king of the Jews, he would have came in and defied Pilate. But he stayed silent. In fact, the only words recorded in here, in fact, the only words recorded until the cross, is Jesus giving a kind of passive affirmation. In the sense that Jesus doesn't want to just kind of jump in on the bandwagon and say, yeah, I'm the king of the Jews. Because he knows that Pilate has all the wrong understanding of what the king of the Jews really means. Just like before how Jesus was reserved with his disciples, like, hey, don't be going around town telling people I'm I'm, I'm the Messiah. Because remember that the Jews had the wrong idea about the Messiah. They thought the Messiah was going to bring a temporal kingdom right now. That he was going to overthrow the kingdom of Rome. And so Pilate here questions Jesus and Jesus says, yeah, you said so. Now, I want you to understand that this does not mean that Jesus is kind of saying, no, I'm not the king of the Jews. In fact, Mark makes it very clear that we are to understand he is the king of the Jews. And here's why. Look at how many times Jesus is referenced to being the king of the Jews in this passage. First in verse 2, and if you just take your eyes down to verse 9, and he answered them, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? So this title is kind of caught on. And then later then in verse 12, Pilate goes back to the crowd. He says, what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Now he's kind of turned the, turned the table on him a little bit. He's now, they're calling him the king of the Jews. It's kind of this switch around here. And then later in verses 18, as we continue down, and they began to salute him, that is the soldiers, hail king of the Jews. And so in this mockery, uh, Pilate's like, you know what, let's just, I'm not taking any chances. Like, if this guy really is, you know, a king in the making, let's make sure the people are clear that this kind of behavior will not be allowed. And then as we know uh, in verse 26, you look at verse 26, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Okay? So we see that the charges that were being brought and what Jesus is ultimately being convicted of is being a king against the throne. Against the throne of Caesar. But he truly is a king. He truly is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messianic king. And we are to be reminded of this truth. 
as we look at his passion, as we look at his sacrifice, we might conclude that he's weak. That he's not as powerful. That he can't really help us. But it's through this weakness, as he willingly submits himself, we understand that we also must willingly submit ourselves to him. In our life, Jesus has called us to submit to him. To submit to his word and obedience to him. And I just wonder this morning, where are you struggling to see Jesus as a king? Where is he a king in your life? Is he only a king on Sunday? Or is he a king of every area of your life? Is he a king of your heart, of your mind, the things you think about, the things you dwell on? Do you willingly submit to him? Or is it something that is exerted? Friends, as we face the temptations that this world offers, as we face unyielding opposition from kings and presidents and oppressive governments, laws exacted in our own country that seek to squash down Christianity, that seeks to, to eradicate Christianity. Friends, Satan is about that work. He would love to see nothing more than to see free worship of Jesus' name ceased in this land. You understand that? Like That's where we're moving towards. That's, that's the end game here. That's the goal here. So with every step and every move, that's the direction we are moving as a country. And the question is, will you remain steadfast? You know, it's one thing to follow Jesus when there's no threat of harm and no threats of persecution. Oh, sure, a few folks might laugh at you. You follow Jesus, that's silly. But it's a completely other thing when we consider giving our lives to going maybe to a land where the gospel is not free, where maybe God is calling you and me to go to a, a land where the gospel cannot roam freely like it does here. But for the sake of the king, we willingly submit to him. We understand that he is not merely the king of the Jews, but he is the king of the kings. That is, he's the king of the president of this United States of America. He's the president of every president and king and every parliament and every Congress, Jesus is king. And that gives us a sense of assurance and steadfastness in our hearts that we know that who is on the throne matters. So remind yourself of this truth this morning that Jesus is a king, but not merely any king. He's the king above every king. But in this passage, we see that Jesus is not merely presented as a king, but Mark presents us and reminds us that Jesus is the suffering servant who demonstrates how you should patiently endure evil. How you should patiently endure evil. We see a bit of a quandary here on the part of Pilate. It's a bit of a plight for him. Mark goes at lengths to do something that some of the other gospel writers don't do, and that is to demonstrate that Pilate thinks Jesus is innocent. As you read down through this, you begin to catch on that Pilate doesn't really so much think that Jesus should die. He thinks that really the charges seem to be trumped up on him. In fact, he's kind of questioning the motives here. We're told in verse 10, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. We see in the interrogation and also in the sentencing of Jesus that, that Pilate isn't really at reservation. He's not quite sure. Even in the question is that we just looked at, are you the king of the Jews? I mean, are you really him? Like, I'm just not so sure this is the case. 
But yet what we see is Pilate's own guilt. If Pilate truly believed Jesus was innocent, then why did he kill him? We see the motive here by Pilate in verse 15. So Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd. Pilate cared more about political power than he did about justice. Pilate was more concerned about his name and his fame than faithfully executing the office that he had been given. But we see something in the midst of this. Look at verse 8. As Jesus is being charged, there was many charges, we are told, brought against him. Many different accusations. This wasn't one charge, although it seems the king of the king, king of the Jews was the, the kind of the main charge. But there was many other ones, we are told, that are brought against, that are levied against him one after another. You are this, you are that, you are worthless, we don't want you. As we heard so faithfully by our brother in his prayer, want you. Let's consider this. We don't want you, God. Is that not, not the reflection of our own hearts in this passage? This, this utter rejection of Jesus of Nazareth, this desire not to have anything to do with Jesus. We see these staggering words, and it caused Pilate to stagger too. Pilate was amazed by Jesus, we are told by Mark. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Why was Pilate amazed? Pilate was used to this, right? This was not Pilate's first trial. Pilate did this regularly. And if you ever watch trials, or if you've ever been to a trial, or maybe you've been on trial yourself, you understand that when you are accused of a crime in our sort of just political system, you, one, get to face your accuser, and two, you get to give a defense of the crimes or the accusations that are being levied against you. And so Pilate would have been used to hearing the accusations, but then the rebuttal. That is, the defense. What, what were the defense? What, what defense does Jesus give? But we notice Jesus remains silent. What are we to make of this? Jesus was silent because he would stop at nothing to see this fulfilled. Jesus would not stop. He would patiently endure this evil. He would not pull the ejection cord. He would not say, I want out of this. He, he would not cry like he did in the garden. Father, take this cup from me. No, he is resolutely going to the cross. He will not stop. And so he remains silent because there is no defense. Because he understands that ultimately he is not answering to Pilate or the Jews. He is on trial before his Father in heaven. Jesus is on trial before the eternal God. As a sinner, Jesus, as an innocent man, Jesus is made sin, the Apostle Paul tells us. But not only that, we see Jesus fulfilling Scripture. The prophecies given by Isaiah in Isaiah 53 tells us that as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
Jesus is fulfilling the word of God. That grand passage of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 is fulfilled before our eyes as Jesus there makes no answer as he's repeatedly beaten, as he's repeatedly mocked and cursed. He says nothing. One thing. I'm going to the cross. I'm not going to do anything. Where Adam, as he stood before the tribunal of God, having just, having rebelled against God and deserving God's just judgment. He made all kinds of excuses. So that woman, <coughs> she did it. I just, I don't know what happened here. It just happened. I don't know what happened. I mean, I don't know. Excuse after excuse after excuse. And every son and every daughter of Adam have been making excuses. Trying to explain away sin. Trying to justify their own sinful hearts. Trying to create fancy psychological disorders in order to soothe their hearts. But Jesus, as he is accused, keeps silent. Does not open his mouth. He does not say a word. But he endures evil. For our sake. Consider what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5. A beautiful passage that really reflects on what's happening here in Romans 5.18. Paul writes, therefore, one tra- as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as many, for as by one man, one man's disobedience, Adam's, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. You hear that? By his one act of obedience, by Jesus keeping his mouth closed and going to the cross, the many were made righteous. Where Adam wanted to explain his sin away, where where Adam wanted to make excuses, Jesus makes no excuse. He doesn't want the cup removed. He takes it all. And he demonstrates to you and I how to patiently endure evil. How you and I may face the similar case where we are falsely accused. But how we patiently endure. How we're often we are faced and tempted to quit. And maybe right now in life, that's where you're at. Like, I mean, if you were given the opportunity to throw in the towel, you might just take it. You're ready to give up. You're ready to quit. You're ready to stop struggling against your sinful flesh. You're just like, what, it's like this is too hard. This is too much. I don't need all this. You know, if I just join Satan's side, maybe he'll leave me alone. You just want to submit yourself to the crushing weight of this world. You want to be caught up in this world. It seems alluring. It really does. It seems attractive. It seems something good. That, that you could find joy and happiness in this world. Friends, there are many things every day of your life from advertisements, billboards, to subtle nut gestures of friends that seek to allure your heart away from the Lord Jesus. And what Jesus is demonstrating for you is how to patiently endure evil. How to endure such attacks. How, how to say, no, I'm not going to give up. No, I'm not going to make excuses, but I'm going to endure for the glory of Christ Jesus. Jesus reminds us that He is the suffering servant 
who demonstrates to us how we also should endure evil. He did it to save us. We do it to endure to the end, to be where he is. That's why we do it. Third and finally, we see that Jesus is a willing sacrifice who died so that you could go free. Friends, you don't really have to be a serious reader of the Bible to see the irony in this passage. And I believe it is by a sovereign God's purposes that things went down the way they went down that day. I mean, this whole thing about a Barabbas, was it really necessary? Was it necessary to tell us about this? Oh, but doesn't it display the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ so clearly? We are told that Barabbas was a murderer. He had actually committed murder in the insurrection, Mark tells us. That is, there was an uprising, as was often the case in Jerusalem. Many attempts to take over, just like you see today, just like that then. Many attempts to take over Jerusalem. And at some point in this, Barabbas committed murder. And really no more details than that, but we know that he's labeled as a murderer. And he's there with others who committed these and most likely Jesus is going to be hung. He's going to die with two other of Barabbas' buddies who were also arrested and convicted and sentenced to death. And so Barabbas is here on death row. Barabbas is awaiting his own execution. Don't know if he's sorry. Don't know if he regrets it. Don't know if he's fearful and worried. We really don't know much about Barabbas. But we do know this. He was guilty. He was guilty. And what is so ironic here is what we are told in verse 6. Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. At the feast. What feast? It was the Passover. What is the Passover? Well, the Passover was a time in the life of the nation of Israel where they would gather together once a year and to celebrate God's delivery from slavery where God freed them. He set them free by the death of some animal, by a lamb. Because a lamb died, they were set free. They would not face death because that lamb died. And so, as they were preparing to sacrifice this lamb, Pilate, just wanting to be a good you know, ruler, he wanted to be nice, and he would always do this. He'd always release for them. Kind of a Passover clemency, a Passover pardon. It was a reflection of what was happening in the Passover. Someone who was guilty was set free. What's so beautiful here in this particular passage is that the Lamb of God is the one who is convicted. That the true Lamb of God, the one that John the Baptist cried out, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, behold, there He is, He's come. He has come. And a guilty man is set free. And an innocent man is tried. 
Friends, as we consider what Pilate did in this passage, we consider this, I hope to see yourself in that place of Barabbas this morning. You and I, because of our sin, are guilty. There's no getting around the guilt. We deserve God's just judgment. And He promises that those who who sin against Him, those who rebel against Him, those who commit murder, those who want to rebel like Barabbas will die eternally. But God in His infinite wisdom and justice delivers over His own Son. And what we see before us is the great exchange. The great exchange that the Bible points to in all of its beauty. From beginning to end, from from Genesis to Revelation, this great exchange is playing out before us. Innocent die. Guilty go free. Perhaps this morning you feel guilty. You feel guilty. You feel it. You, you're, you, there's no getting around the guilt of your sin. There's no getting around your feelings this morning. You feel the weight and the crush of sin. You know that the enemy reminds you of your sin all the time. You used to do this, and oh, remember when you did that? Oh, he does that. Consider what Paul writes in Colossians 2. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... Positive message this morning. Before Christ, you're dead. You're dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against them with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. What we see here in an innocent man, Jesus Christ, is in your place. He's in my place this morning. Though the world throws all the evil it can, we can know that Jesus died for us. The assurance of the love of Christ Jesus for you this morning isn't because you were a real good boy this week. It was because Christ Jesus died on the cross for you. I wonder. I just wonder for a moment what, what was going through the mind of Barabbas when he heard, you've been set free. Friend, you can hear that same thing this morning. Not from small... Thrones like Pilate's. But you can hear that from the eternal throne of God this morning. That you are free. You are free from sin and death. You will no longer face death. Friends, we know that the resurrection Sunday is coming. The hope of the gospel is secured in Christ. As this innocent man dies for the guilty. If you will just turn from your sin and trust in Christ, you too can hear. Friends, as we consider this passage, we see the depths of human depravity.
but the heights of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. Let our minds and our hearts today, this Lord's Day, be caught up into the heights of the glories of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, it is you that we give praise and glory and honor to. We truly do stand amazed at this willing sacrifice for our sin. And we know and have assurance this morning that we can experience freedom. Know that we are free in Christ Jesus today. Not free to live our lives as we want, but free to willingly submit to you in steadfast submission for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, as we have considered